0: Look at Proverbs chapter 8, we continue to talk through this scripture. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of the budget that we will be um, uh, putting before you for vote next Sunday, uh, December 16th, for 2013. Our calendar year and fiscal year are the same here, and so there's copies of this budget available, and also they were emailed to you um, also this week. And so if you're having trouble getting that open on the internet and, and looking at it. It could be that you're not properly logged into the membership page at Grace Fellowship. And if you're kind of confused and can't get that to work, Dave Swinney uh, is available and he's he's uh, more than capable of helping you. And so um, that just call him this week or email him and that way he can get you there. We want you to see it and we want you to come prepared next week. As you see, there are increases this year. As you I said last week, um, we are now, as of la- this past Sunday, we're only about $3,000 behind budget for the year, which means we're ahead of budget. And we expect you to continue to give these last three weeks and end of the year giving. All of that combined should push us well over the three hundred five that we projected, which is glorious. I mean, it's just a testimony to God's goodness. And so the increase uh, that we're having is an increase. And it is, a, it is aggressive, but we don't think it's unrealistic. One of the uh, increases that you'll see is in staff and and uh, staff salaries and uh, and so I, I call your attention to that and that was granted by the deacons and the elders here for the staff and so one of the changes that we made in presenting this to you is we changed the title for Dave Swinney from pastor of college and M- music and college or music and missions I think we still had the oldest title from way back. Um, And we change that because we don't don't want you to see Dave as a music minister. That's not what he is. He is a pastor. He's an elder and pastor and teacher in this church. And what you see him doing up here is very vital. I don't know if you think that magically some scroll floats down on Saturday night and all these pieces of worship that bring you into the presence of the Lord just happen. They just pop on the page and everybody's on the same page. They don't. He labors at that. But just listen to this. That's about 10% of what this man does here at Grace Fellowship. He spends the vast majority of his time shepherding people, whether it be college students or families or visiting or spending time in prayer or in study and preparation on top of the fact that he works another job. So listen, he's giving himself to you fully. So please understand, our goal for him in the future Uh, As we move forward, our hope and prayer is that we'll be in a position at some point when God wills to make that a full time position that he won't have to be employed anywhere else. That's our goal. So some of the increases you're seeing are, are in that stead that we're trying to make that move because we value what he's doing. And I know you value it, but I just wanted to say that publicly, that that's the desire of the elders and the deacons. And, and we believe everything's in line with uh, what's appropriate. Another big change you might notice is in children's ministry. But that's simply because we have two line items now. There's, a, there's about $11,000 given to children's ministry and community outreach through the children's ministry, VBS and some other things that we do through the children's ministry. And nobody, I don't think, quabbles over what we do with children here. Uh, Thelma Pinkston is par excellent. There's nobody like her, I tell you. Um, I've prayed that God would extend her life and her ability, her energy and that maybe when she turns 100, we'll have, uh, have plans on her stepping aside. Uh, so uh, I'm not going to tell you how long. That's a long time from now, though, a long time from now. But, uh, no, in all seriousness, I, I, the, the budget is there for you to look at, to think about, pray about, ask questions about it, and we'll vote on it next week. All right, Proverbs chapter 8. I want to talk about uh, this whole chapter together, and really this is the second part of the 10th, admonition from the father to his son this is the second part so chapter seven the description of what an adulteress is is tied to chapter eight and I'm I'm entitling chapter eight the sermon on chapter eight wisdom described wisdom described we could also say wisdom's call we could say wisdom's call or wisdom described in proverbs eight so there's a contrast going on here Solomon is is contrasting the adulteress and, and the, the personification of wisdom. Adultery in the Bible is often seen as the direct opposite of wisdom. It's often seen as the direct opposite of godliness or holiness or righteousness. And so it just becomes, in a sense, the way of darkness. Adultery is seen as the way of darkness, it's the way of Satan. We might say that chapter 7 tells us the way of the devil and chapter 8 tells us the way of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the embodiment and the personification of wisdom, the wisdom from God. But let's, let me just uh, maybe pull, tease some of this out for you. The that, that things that I see as I read chapter 7 and chapter 8 and I see just an overall attitude towards the adulteress and towards wisdom. First of all, the adulteress. Calls out in darkness. This is not the outline for today's sermon. This is just free. This is free of charge. I'm not going to make you um, give any extra in the box today for this, this right here. This is just for you. Adult, the adulteress is calling out in the dark. Notice that it's in the twilight in chapter ni- uh, chapter 7, verse 9, that she's calling out to the young man. It's in the night. It's secret. It's not public. The adulteress calls out in darkness, in the night, and secretly, but wisdom calls out in light, in the daytime, in the most public of places, the city gate. Wisdom has nothing to hide from. Wisdom has nothing to be ashamed of. Wisdom has nothing to try to connive and sneak into you. Wisdom is public. Adultery is secret. Only a fool flaunts adultery. Only a foolish sinner would brag about his sin. Secondly, Solomon says adultery is sexually impure, but wisdom is holy. Wisdom is altogether noble and moral and holy as we will see in in chapter 8 verse 6. It's noble and it's holy. Third, a, the adulterer, the adulterer is faithless. When her husband goes on the long trip and she and he's not expected back for a month because Uh, Till the next full moon. Because he's taken his bag of money. And he's gone off to work. The adulteress exposes her faithlessness. I mean he's gone on a business trip. And and she cannot do what is righteous. Even for a month. She is faithless. But. Wisdom is faithful. Wisdom has been possessed by the Lord. Since before the world began. Wisdom has never failed. To lead anyone uh, to the light. And to life. Fourth. The adulteress is without a heart. She guards her heart, it says. She she holds herself. She'll give you her body, but she won't give you her inner essence. She hides that from you. She keeps that from you. But wisdom is not this way. Wisdom gives you the heart. It gives you the very essence of who God is. Wisdom is giving and serving, not taking and stealing. Five uh, the adulteress gives fleeting pleasure. Oh, it's fun for a season. It's, it, it's pure ecstasy for a moment. But then it ends in Sheol and in death. But wisdom is eternal. Wisdom never ceases. Wisdom, as I said in verses 22 through 31 of chapter 8, will show us that it is from the beginning of the world until the very ending of the world and beyond. Sixth. Uh, The adulteress is selfish, but wisdom is a servant. And seventh, the contrast that's set up here is that the adulteress is death, but wisdom is life. Verses 32 through 36, and especially ending in uh, 35, says, For whoever finds me, talking about wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. That's just... That's just the contrast that I see in this passage in 7 and 8. So let's look at chapter 8 and focus on I want to read it to you, and then I want to cover it in three sections. The first section is verses 1 through 5. Second section, verses 6 through 31. And the third and final section is 32 through 36. Let's read it. Does not wisdom call. Notice there is no introductory that you normally would get like in chapter 7 where it says in verse 1, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. That's because chapter 8 is the continuation of chapter 7. In the original, there were no chapter divisions. So this would have been together. One-tenth teaching from the father to his son, a final teaching. Does not wisdom call and does not understanding raise her voice On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cries to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Second section. Hear, for I will speak noble things. And from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands. And right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver. And knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom. Dwell with prudence. And I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Notice from chapter 1 on, it said the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of what? Knowledge or wisdom. And here it says the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. You cannot love God and love man or this world, the things of this world. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me kings reign and rulers decree with what is just. By me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasures. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. That word possessed in the Hebrew can also be called fathered. The Lord fathered me, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His works, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of earth, when, you were, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there was no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before He had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the uh, dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle, the circumference or the the, uh, very um, atmosphere in which we live, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in the inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Finally, in verses 32 through 36, we see the final plea of wisdom. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates. Waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. The first thing we see in this passage in chapter 8 verses 1 through 5 is wisdom is calling all who will listen. Wisdom is calling out to everyone who will listen. So where is she calling from we might ask. Well, she's calling uh, with this humble attitude, she's calling from the most public of places. Do not, does not wisdom call, does not understanding, raise her voice. Where does she do this? On the heights, beside the way. So in the raised up place, above the road, she's made herself visible, wisdom has. And that the traveler on life's way is traveling this road and wisdom is calling from the heights. And, not only from the heights, but look in verse 3. She's beside the gate, the most public of squares in all the ancient world. In the gate, she's there, screaming out, calling forth. At the entrance to the portal, the little door, beside the gate, she's there, calling out. Now, in the ancient cities, you might know this or might not. In the ancient cities, we're told that the judges sat there in the gates of the city. And they heard the cases. Who in the Bible do we know sat in the gate with the men of the town? Job, right? Job, the righteous man of God, in his day sat in the gate of his town. He was a revered and respected figure. It's there that wisdom is calling out. It's there that wisdom is making herself known. She's humbled herself. She sat at the right hand of God, and now she's humbled herself to come down to the ways of man. She's not far and cast off and unsearchable and unreachable, she's attained right there in the public square. So she, where is she? She's in public. She's not hidden. She's made clear. And who does she call? Because you might say, well, okay, she's public to all those people, but I don't know where she is. She's not calling me. Wisdom isn't. But look what the Bible says. She calls in verses, uh, verse 4. Look at verse 4. To you, O men, the word for Hebrew there is aristocracy, the aristocracy, the high society. To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of man. That's the word for low class. So I call to the heights of the classes and I call to the bottom of the barrel. Wisdom is available to everybody. This is the way the writer can say it. She's not leaving any class of man out. It's here that we see the, the equity of the gospel. It's here that we see the call that pertains to Jesus Christ. Who has he called? He has called all classes of men. He has made his call known. His call to come to him to all the world. I don't care if you're here today and you're the richest of the rich. And I don't care if you're the bottom of the barrel. I don't care if you would say there is no one in this county poorer than me. The gospel is for you. Rich man, you're in as much need, maybe greater than the man at the bottom. Your wealth will send you to hell if you let it. Poor man, you're in need, maybe greater need than you could ever imagine because you think because of your poorness God favors you and he does not. Take no pride in your position. Whether you're rich or you're poor, God doesn't play favorites. He's not a respecter of men. Both men and women, slave and free, educated and uneducated, are equal at the foot of the cross. And wisdom is calling you this morning. Calling you. And we're going to see who wisdom is in just a moment. Later in the passage, it will be made clear. But the call goes to all from the public place. Every class of man, aristocracy, upper class, lower class. In verse 5, look at verse 5. It's made even clearer. The simple ones, the naive ones, the uncommitted ones, the ones who would be easily led out into stray. The naive, the inexperienced. Wisdom is calling. Oh, simple ones, learn prudence. The fool, verse 4, uh, uh, I mean, excuse me, verse 5b. The fool calling on you to learn sense. The fool might be seen as the worldly man. The one who is is of this world. The one who's busy about material things. He's calling you. Now I want you to understand there's one class of people not here in this passage. I say that everybody's here, but there's one class that's not addressed directly. That's the one who ridicules. That's the one who scoffs at. That's the one who mocks God. He's not addressed. Why? Because he's unreachable. His prideful arrogance keeps him from hearing the call of wisdom. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated. None of that matters. But if you harden your heart, you can never hear and understand. Why do you think Jesus constantly said to the Pharisees he who has ears let him hear they didn't have physical ears oh no they had hardened themselves against the Lord and so he's warning them they heard that and they knew exactly what Jesus was saying he wasn't referring to physical hearing ability he was referring to their scoffing, mocking ridicule the Pride In their heart that rose up to say We know the way and you're not it That person can't hear wisdom If you find yourself there today You should be very afraid You set your teeth Against the truth children And you'll find the truth gets harder And harder to discern You set your mind To the things of this world And commit yourself against God And make yourself his opponent children By the time You reach adulthood, you will be so hardened, you will be impenetrable. Don't do that. Wisdom is calling out publicly and humbly, come. Come if you're rich, come if you're poor, come if you're educated, come if you're uneducated. Everyone should come. And no one should harden themselves against the Lord. So we have here the call of wisdom. It's very public and it's to all people. Secondly, in this passage, in verses 6 through 31, we see that wisdom is moral. It's excellent in its morality. Wisdom is moral. Look at verse 6 through 9. She here says, Hear, for I will speak noble things, moral things. That's the way to look at that. And from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteousness. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them, perverted. There's nothing perverted in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Wisdom is for those who are not earthly and not human, uh, about human wisdom, but rather are appealing for godly wisdom. Wisdom is for those who are seeking godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. You won't find Jesus Christ by intellect. You won't find Jesus Christ by being more educated. You won't find Jesus Christ by following the ways of this world. It's impossible. You will only find Him through the Spirit and through godly wisdom. Many a seminarian graduates with his degree and loses his God. Many. There are many who graduate from the best of places where we would, we would sit and say, Oh man, this is a wonderful place. This is godly. This is, this, is, this is a place of high privilege. And yet, in a few years, you contact them and they're skeptics. A way. Why? You can't find Jesus in seminary. If you go in without Him, you're likely to come out hardened against Him. The academy never made a man holy. Now, I'm not against training, obviously. I think training is valuable. But here we're told that it's the righteous ways of God that are coming from the lips of wisdom. They, they, They are an abomination to wickedness. They are the words of righteousness. They are not perverted. They are truly the words of God. Wisdom is found, the moral wisdom that we need so dearly in our world to avoid the adulterer is the word of wisdom that comes from God. It comes from God. She's practical. Wisdom is practical. Verses 10 through 12 show how practical she is. Look what he says. Take my instruction. Don't worry about silver, knowledge. Don't choose gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I think, uh, here, of the of the lottery. You go look at the fate of those who've won the lottery lately. In a matter of five to ten years, most of them have squandered it all. Why? Because they were fools when they won the lottery. And they desired wealth and got it, and it did them no good because they didn't have wisdom. They didn't have knowledge. People say, well, I'm glad I didn't win the lottery because i ruined me. You know, I kind of got the opposite view. I'm like, man, I wish I could win the lottery. Because I think knowing God prevents that. I think if you didn't worship money before, and you're wise to know salvation, money doesn't ruin you. What it exposes in you when you get a big windfall of money is your unrighteousness. the righteous man... Listen, listen, some of your great heroes of the faith were wealthy men. Some of them were wealthy men. I think specifically... About men of old who ha- had wealth, we know that they did, they came from high and, and and lofty position. I think of all the good that they've done, not all of the poor, all the all, all not all not uh, that they turn into poor, but they get they mobilized that wealth for the kingdom of God and I'm just amazed that it it's, it's so clear to me it comes so clear reading this passage that those who are already foolish and seeking after crooked and perverse things, when they get money, they find perverseness at the max and they waste everything they've got. If you seek after riches, the Bible's saying right here, and not wisdom, be careful what you seek for, what you reach for. I think about George Mueller. George Mueller was a wealthy man, he inherited great treasure from his family. It's passed down to him. What did he do with it? He started orphan houses all over London. He took in the poor. He took care of them with his dime. He traveled the world. When he turned 70, in his 70s, he quit working in the orphanage. He assigned that over to others, and he toured the world preaching. He did it on his own dime. He didn't ask anybody for anything. So wealth doesn't ruin you. If you're ruined, wealth will expose your ruin. If you're a perverse person, it'll just open up gates for you to be more perverse. Wealth is not an ungodly thing in the Bible. It's never seen to be something to be hated, but rather not to be loved the way you love God. It's never to be made your God. It will fail you. So wisdom is better than riches because you can get riches without wisdom and fail everything, but you can have wisdom without riches and be a successful and fruitful man. Look what it says in in, uh, verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. And he goes on down to say that kings reign by him and princes rule over him. And he says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me. Notice that it's not against riches. Find wisdom, and you will be eternally rich. That's the point of Proverbs here. Find me, and you will find eternal riches. Find the world's riches, and you will be eternally foolish, possibly. Very possibly. My fruit. So what what is produced by godly wisdom, verse 19? Well, his fruit is greater than gold. His yield is more choice than silver. I think about the fruit of the marriage. The fruit of parenting. The fruit of godly business practice. All of those things in the scripture are valued far more than gold and silver and jewels. Some of you uh, are working minimum wage or just a little above it. And life's hard for you. But every night you're loving your wife well. Every day you're bathing her in the word. The Bible says you're rich. The Bible says you, c- you come from a high standing. In the stead of Christ, you're standing with Him. You have children who you've raised up in the Word of God. You've taught them at night, and you've prayed for them as they sleep. I never will forget uh, sitting under Frank Barker at a conference, and, and someone asked him about parenting. What was the secret of parenting or something? And he kind of laughed and as only he can. He looked up and said, well, I would assume that it's prayer, because you can't raise your children without it. And I was kind of like, well, that's good. Somebody said, well, when do you pray for your kids? He said, well, I, I regularly, all the time. And his son, his son-in-law's there, and was talking about his his wife, her, Frank's daughter. Said she tells me she would wake up often, and her dad would be praying at the foot of her bed. He'd be praying, bitch pray all night, begging for God to work in her life wisdom in parenting is to be valued far above gold, far above silver. How many a rich man has foolish children and breaks his heart? The Bible says, seek the wisdom of God first, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about it. So, Wisdom is a practical thing. It's not a high and lofty knowledge that's not touching normal life. It touches every area of normal life. The marriage, the business, the children. How you relate with your friends. And it bears great fruit. And wisdom, in her moral perfection also was with God and affected the creation of the world. It caused the creation of the world, verses 22 through 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His works. He fathered me at the beginning of His works. God didn't create the world without wisdom, so how do you think you can build your life without it? That's what the Proverbs wants you to know. If God used wisdom to create the world, how do you think you can build a life without godly wisdom? Do you in a sense, raise yourself up as greater than God? You think he needed something that you don't need? Or he possessed something that you could do without? That's the question. So he, he was there, wisdom was, when all of the world was being laid down. He goes through and he, he makes plain. It's when he set up the firmament, when he made the mountains, when he put the foundations of the world together, when he sprang the water up from deep. All of that was done in wisdom. When you look at the world, you think no one but God can make this world. No one could create something as beautiful and as high and as intricate as this. Listen, we look at one small thing, like the human eyeball, and we think, how did God do that? How did God make that? And the Bible here tells us it was with wisdom that he made it. He made this with wisdom. The beauty of creation is unmatched. It's unmatched. And it's that way primarily in man. At the end of this section, and what I want to emphasize in the sermon, look at verse 30. Like a master workman, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in who? The children of man. God's wise creation God's beautiful creation was made for man. Everything he did. We get so awestruck at mountains. We lay on our backs in in an environment where there's not a lot of interference of light. We see all the stars and we just wonder at it. We think, man, this is marvelous. And God looks down from heaven and says, you're looking at the wrong thing. I created all that so you would marvel at mankind. So many of us would spend our days in creation, cut away from the one thing that God created all of that for. And that was for our fellow man. Listen, you can't become a recluse. Wise people are not reclusive people. They interact with their fellow man. They do that, especially godly wisdom causes us to do that. causes us to have a heart for our fellow man because that's why God did all this. The climactic act of creation is not the mountains, it's not the sky, it's not the ocean, it's not some animals, it's not a mountain or dry land. It's the children of man that all that's created for. And so we see that wisdom is a moral, creative, beautiful, practical thing. Or is it a thing? Is it a thing? I think the passage only makes sense if we understand wisdom to be embodied by Jesus Christ. If you cut wisdom from Christ, then wisdom ceases to be godly. It becomes worldly in its wisdom. And I want to draw your attention to some New Testament passages, I think, that teach us this. I want to look at at Matthew chapter 11. I want to compare the words of Jesus to the words of Solomon. Now, see if you see what I see here. When I think it's clear. I'm not the first to see it, others have seen it. You could have gone to a number of passages besides Matthew 11. I just chose one. Matthew 11, verse 25 says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. God hid the work of salvation from the wise so that they can't get it through worldly wisdom, education, academia, and he gave it to mere children, this wisdom, to mere children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So there's this electing uh, statement. Jesus says, I only show the Father to those who I choose to show the Father to. It's a very particular revelation. It's hidden from the bulk of humanity in their wisdom and in in their deadness. But it's alive to little children and those like little children who Jesus chooses to show the wisdom of God and show the wisdom of the Father. But look what he does in verse 28 and see if this doesn't sound just like verses 1 through 5 in our passage. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus stood along the byways and the highways. And he cried out to all who would hear him. Come to me. Come to me. You're tired? Come to me. I'll give you rest. You lack wisdom? Come to me. I'll give you understanding. I'm the knowledge of the holy." Come to me. He's just like that wisdom that's being described for us in Proverbs 8. It's a public call that goes forward. It's a humble call. Think of the humility of Christ. It's described for us in Philippians chapter 2. Seated at the right hand of the Father. He didn't hold on to that, grasp tightly to it, possess it as if he was selfish, but rather gave it up that high position, and came in the form of man, even the form of a servant, and he served till the death of a cross, a traitor's death. He humbled himself. He didn't esteem himself to be greater, but rather put himself underneath his brothers and lifted them up. There was nobody too dirty for Jesus to speak to. There was nobody too sinful for him not to try. And reach them for his father. Jesus is the embodiment of the wisdom that's given to us in Proverbs 8. Or described for us in Proverbs 8. Look at John chapter 8. This one just came to my mind. Just because I love John. Uh, Not that I don't love the other gospels. But John's my favorite gospel. And in John 8. Jesus does something here. um, talking Talking to them about himself. And why they won't believe in him. John 8, 43, Jesus dealing with the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews and the people gathered in the temple for the festival, and this is what he says. Why do you not understand what I say? He's not saying that as if he doesn't know. It's a rhetorical question. He's about to give the answer. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. You're of the adulteress. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. But there is no truth in him. That's chapter 7 of Proverbs. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45. But, because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Why does the world not believe in Jesus? Why do they not come to his call? Because they reject him because they're sons of Satan. That's pretty harsh. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell the truth. Why do you not believe me? Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You don't hear the wisdom of God because you don't love God. You don't pursue God. You don't want God. You're not of Him. You're of your Father. So I think that speaks to us a little about this wisdom in Proverbs 8. I think about the apologetics movement that we've just been through, and we're still in it in a sense. Everybody wants to be trained in apologetics, and there's nothing wrong with apologetics. If you love apologetics, I'm not against it. I love Ravi Zacharias. I love men like him. But listen, sometimes my thought is we're trying to argue people into heaven who hate heaven. We're trying to convince people of the goodness of Christ when they think he is evil and to be forgotten as a simpleton from the past. Good apologetics, as Ravi Zacharias would tell you, is for the believer, not for the lost person. You can't argue somebody into the gates of heaven. You can strengthen your own faith through the study of apologetics and the reasons for your faith. But you can't ever make a man believe something through argument. It just won't work. He just bows up and argues back. You can give reasons for your faith, but they must be clothed in humility and graciousness and mercy, not in academics. That never wins. That never wins. And I think about that because of this passage in John 8. Jesus says, listen, I've just made the most eloquent appeals to you based on truth. You don't accept them because you're not of me. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So when we deal with the lost world, I think we're better to follow the Matthew 11 model. To plead with him. Come to Christ. Come to him. You're tired. I can see it in your eyes. You're weak. I can see it in your heart. You're hungry. I can tell by your desperate questions. Come to Jesus. He's the answer. Rather than, let me tell you why from prolegomena you should believe in the beginning of knowledge and walk through the teleological arguments for the existence of God. With a lost man, it means nothing. With a Christian, it might, but with a lost man, nothing. I think the pleading of Jesus is where he goes with lost, with the convinced and the convicted against him, he just simply writes them. He just puts his hand to them, just like wisdom. See, he's the embodiment of, of Proverbs 8. Jesus is the embodiment of it. And finally, we look at one last New Testament passage that is the top of the pile, in a sense, when talking about wisdom and how it's possessed in Christ, or Christ possesses all wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I just want to close reading this to you. Wisdom is to be followed for the sake of life. The last verses of Proverbs chapter 8, verses 32 through 36, are just a simple plea to come to wisdom because he is life. Reject adulteresses because they are death, okay? Reject the way of evil because it's the way of Sheol and the grave and death. Come to Jesus, I believe, is what he's saying. If you look at Proverbs chapter 1, verses 18 through 2, All of chapter 2. I just want to read it. Not a lot of comment. Just read it. Just listen to what Paul says. I think it's passages like Proverbs 8 that are on Paul's mind when he writes this. He's inspired to write this. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. You can't know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God. And what? The wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. We were the sharp pencils in the box. We were the dim light bulbs. That's who we were, most of us. (laughs) You better get used to that kind of talk about Christians from the Bible. We did not get where we are. You are not in the family of God because you're better than those who are not in the family of God. In yourself, you're no better As a matter of fact, we might argue that most of us who are in Christ were worse than those people. Worse in intellect, worse in strength, worse in nobility, or in birth, or in birthright. We were the simpletons of the earth, and God saved us. Why? Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not To bring to nothing things that are. So that, this is the reason. No human being might boast in the presence of God. Nobody will stand in the new heavens and the new earth and say, I'm here because I was smart. I'm here because of who my daddy was. I'm here because of of the powerful positions I had on the earth. God had to let me in because of my name and who I am. No. Everyone who's there will say, I'm the weakest I was the dumbest. I was the least respected in many ways. But God loved me anyway. No one can boast in His presence. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became, He became, He took on the wisdom of Proverbs 8 from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He didn't try to argue. He didn't try to reason. He didn't use rhetoric. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was tr- with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What is that? That is the pleading of Matthew 11. Paul came to sinners like Jesus came to sinners. Come to Jesus. Not with a lot of high arguments. You say, I'm not smart enough to share the gospel. Paul begs to differ. Paul was well trained, but he set all the training aside when he evangelized. And he just held out Christ to the hungry. He held out Christ to the tired. He held out Christ to the beat up and the bruised and the battered and the broken and the dead. And he said, come and you will live. He pleaded with them as a dying man to dying men. That's how he presented the gospel. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I didn't use eloquent arguments because I wanted you to trust in God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Notice his switch? To those inside the church, I've been giving you wisdom. You come to church and you say, Carl's always preaching stuff that's over my head. I'm not trying to be over your head. I'm really not. I try to make it very simple. i got letter in the office not long ago from a child in our congregation who said thank you for making the Bible easy to understand. That means something to me more than anybody shake my hand and tell me I preached well. That means something. Why? Because I'm not trying to be eloquent and academic and have this great polished rhetorical device. I want you to see Christ. I want you to come to him. I'm pleading. I'm begging. I'm making myself, as Paul would say, a fool for the sake of Christ. We're making noble things known. We're making wisdom known. For for why? Although it is not a wisdom of this age nor the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. John chapter 1. The word was with God and the word was God and the word was with God. Through him, he created everything that was created. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31 is about Jesus Christ. He is the one that was fathered by God prior to the world's foundation. And then through him, all of the wisdom of God is displayed in creation. And his crowning act was the act of creating man. That's why in John 1.14, He became flesh and dwelt among us so that we might behold His glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the wisdom of God. You can reject Him if you choose, but you will die in your sin. Come to Him, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and He will give you rest. You say, you say I'm so undone in my sin. He takes those who are undone and He binds up the wounds of the broken hearted. And He makes the dead man live. He makes the blind man see. He makes the deaf man hear. He makes the lame man walk. He takes away the leper's spots. He is the wisdom of God. And He is our only hope. Come to Him. That's what I'm saying to you this morning. No Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Romans chapter 8. He prays prayers for us that we cannot pray because he knows God and he knows what we need. He's our wisdom. He's the one pleading on our behalf. Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God. The spirit of wisdom that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart these in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, Proverbs 7, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, Proverbs 8, but he is himself to be judged by no one. He rules like a king and a prince with Jesus Christ, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have what? The mind of Christ. Christians, you have the mind of Jesus Christ. And I want to point you finally to His Word. Where can we find Him? In His Word. When I stress to you reading through the Bible, that's not just because I think it's a good habit, so you might have some knowledge just so you can know Christ. If you haven't read through the Bible, I plead with you to read it. Don't just read it for sake of knowing something. Read it for knowing someone. Knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Children, if you started out right now, at your young age, eight, nine years old, and started reading through the Bible, begging and pleading God to reveal himself to you, I believe he will. And I believe he will make you strong in wisdom. And when you are old, you won't depart from it. I believe that. I pray you believe it in your hearts and the depths of who you are. I pray that you will come to Jesus. The things of this world will pass away, but he will never pass away. The knowledge of this world will wither like grass and will die like a bloom, but the word of God stands forever. Know him. Possess him. And though you are a fool, he will make you wise.